if you have been with us, uh, we are, Lord willing, planning to walk through each of the Gospels over the month of December uh, to hear how they begin, how they share the stories of Christ's coming as we look in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. And so this morning we come to Mark and we hear about the beginning of the Gospel. And as we think about beginnings, uh, maybe you find that there's a special place for you. It kind of marked a, a moment in life or places that you just feel like, man, Maybe it's a vacation spot. You and your family just feel like, man, that's kind of our spot. We love to go back there. We just love to spend time there and enjoy that and, and experience it, right? For, for some of you, maybe it's um, not just physical places that you think about, but maybe it's mentally, right? Maybe in your mind, you can return back to maybe your grandparents' home as a kid growing up, and you remember being there maybe on that farm or those paths, or maybe you can still smell things in their home and remember just being a part of that. So maybe it's not just physically, but sometimes mentally in your mind, you can return back to that place, and it's special for you. I, I remember back about some, just kind of that thought of returning back to beginnings. Um, Miss Tara Gupton, one of our special senior adults, um, just a godly lady. I, I remember one of the first times sitting down in her living room and, and hearing her go back and return back to the story of how she met Mr. Garnet. And she would, she would go in and talk about being this girl walking in the store, and she's like, there he was. Right, And she, would, she was so excited, she would retell that story, and then she would go on to recount about how the first time she got into the vehicle with him and said he had those rumble seats. And I don't know what rumble seats were, but I was like, man, those sound awesome. right? And she would just recount the story. She was just going back to the beginning, right? By this point, Mr. Garnet was gone, and, but she was returning back to the beginning, reminding herself of how things began and how significant that relationship was. And I think it's important that we return back to the beginning. And so for you, you may have some things in which you return back to the beginning. Guess what? Mark does that today. You see, Matthew writes to a Jewish audience, but for Mark, it's different. It's likely believed that Mark has heard his gospel firsthand from the apostle Peter. Mark is a guy that you probably, many of you would like. He's a really straight shooter, man. He's kind of like maybe the kind of preacher you might like to have. He's kind of like, hey, get to the chase already. Get to the point. If you like that kind, Mark is your guy, man. Not a lot of fluff. Mark gets to the chase. He gives you the details. Wham, bam, and he's out, right? Mark is just kind of that guy. Mark writes, again, we believe, to probably... Christians who are in Rome who are Gentiles. They're not Jewish. They didn't grow up with the Old Testament. And so that means that Mark will tell them things about the Jewish customs that they probably didn't know because they didn't grow up in that family, right? They don't know the stories. He tells sometimes words in Aramaic that they're not familiar with, and he translates it for them. But Mark also knows something about these people, right? As he writes in some type of pastoral tone, these believers in Rome are suffering. And Mark knows the thing about suffering. And he knows that often when we suffer, we begin to wonder, is God still good? Does God still care about me? Does God still see me? Right? Sometimes death, disease, brokenness in our homes and lives, natural disasters, all of it begin to make us doubt at times, is the gospel still good news? And to those believers, Mark writes, and maybe that you today, and so you might hear Mark writing to you as a believer who struggles with suffering, who's found yourself in the midst of hard times, Mark reminds us, what do we do in the midst of hard times? What do we do as we suffer? And Mark says this, believers continually return to the gospel. In other words, we go to Jesus. What do we do in hard times? Mark says, believers, we continually return back to the gospel. We return to Jesus. We continually refocus our hearts and minds on Christ and the word. 
It's interesting, right, as you're going to find out this morning, is that Mark doesn't tell us anything about Jesus' birth. That makes it a little awkward to preach during Christmas, I'll be honest. But man, Mark has so much good news for you and my, for, for you and my, your and my soul. I, I hope and pray today that if you can leave half as encouraged as I have been from this text, you are going to be blessed today. You're going to go blitz that door thinking, saying, thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Might even be some shouting in this place. This is going to be good news today as Mark opens up the beginning of the gospel to us. So let's look as Mark begins the gospel here to us in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. And the first thing that we hear is the source of the gospel. The source of the gospel is Jesus. Mark makes that really clear. Listen to what he says beginning in verse 1 of Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now Mark is going to start out, like I said, he doesn't include anything about Jesus' birth at all. But he says, what does define the gospel? I want you to know. What begins the gospel? The gospel is another word for good news. He says, I want you to know what begins that. It's Jesus. When Jesus is here, he says the gospel is here. The good news has actually come to us. And notice what he says is he calls it the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if you look there, again, depending upon your translation, most of you probably have the word Christ. But the word Christ indicates Messiah. That's the word for anointed. Think back with me, if you would, for a moment in the Old Testament. Passages like 1 Samuel chapter 16. In 1 Samuel 16, Saul is the king, but he has abandoned God. And so the prophet Samuel is now going to anoint a new king. He shows up and he meets all these sons of Jesse. And he is assured that this older one, the taller one, surely those are the one that God has chosen. But no, no, no. And finally he says, well, do you have anybody else? And he's like, well, I got my youngest. He's a little shepherd boy. His name is David. He says, go get him, I'll wait. And he says, when David shows up, the Lord says, that's him. And Saul, or, or the prophet Samuel, you know what he does to identify that, that, that David is a new king? It says he takes that flask, that, that horn of oil, he breaks it out open, and he pours it over David. That's a sign to say this is the king. That's the word for anointed. So when you see the word Jesus and then the word Christ there, that word Christ indicates that he's the anointed. He's the Messiah. He's the long-awaited true son of David, the great king. This is the savior of the world. And so listen, he identifies him there. And we might ask, well, what did the Christ come to do? Well, Mark, if you're going to walk with us in a few moments, we're going to rely upon, a, lot, a lot upon the words of Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah chapter 40. And we're going to cite some of those and share them. But Mark, as he shares here and talks about Jesus Christ, this anointed son of God. And notice again, he, he talks about the word. He says, this is the beginning of the gospel. Again, the word gospel, apologize there. The word gospel, right, is, is the word for which we get good news, right? That's how it's translated. Well, guess what? Mark is pulling from Isaiah chapter 40 where the people are told to guess what? Go and proclaim the good news or go and to proclaim the gospel listen to what happens in isaiah chapter 40 verse 9 go up up to a high mountain O zion zion's another word for jerusalem the people of god herald notice what he says to them herald what good news lift up your voice with strength O jerusalem herald of good news so again constantly they're told to go out and tell the gospel the good news right and we wonder like well what is the good news What's so great about this gospel? What makes the gospel good news? Listen to what they proclaim. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, what church? Behold your God. That's what makes the gospel good news. That statement, behold your God. 
salvation, church, is God himself coming to us. This is good news. Salvation is not a program where God sits in heaven and just kind of says, hey, I'm going to do this and from far off. Salvation itself is not just some deep theology that's hidden in heavenly realms that we can never discover. No, the gospel is God himself coming to earth, taking on flesh that he might live a sinless life, go to the cross and die in our place, be buried on the third day, raised again, that all who might believe in him might experience salvation. This is why you can have hope today, despite the diagnosis. This is why, because behold, your God, your God has come for you. This is why you can have hope despite the brokenness or lack of finances. It's why, because you have what is most valuable. You have God himself. Or might we even say God has us in the palm of his hand. You see, the difference between us and the people of Isaiah's day is that they were declaring, they were saying these words, he is coming. But we stand now with Mark and say, he has come. Just like Mark begins with the gospel, so does the Christian life. The reality is, right, as you begin your Christian life, you begin with the gospel. I want to remind you of that. For some of you, that's where your life needs to start, right? To ever have true meaning and purpose, you need to come and know the one true living God. Behold your God, Jesus Christ in the flesh. But I want to compel you, right? Not only that, as believers, we don't ever grow past the gospel. That's what Mark's saying. We continually return back to the gospel. So as you return this year, as you think about Christmas and what's it look like to celebrate Christmas, I want to encourage you to return back to when you were saved. Remember back. What was it like? Have you thought through it? Do you remember the joy, the things you experienced? I want to challenge you with something. Who's one person this Christmas that you might share that with? I want to ask you grandparents. Do your grandchildren know your salvation story? They know your testimony. Parents, have your children heard it? Aunts and uncles, do your niece and nephews, they know your story? Others of you, maybe think about a friend at school, do they know your story? Maybe you'd say, you know what, Blake, I, man, I would love to, I'm just being really honest, I'm not sure I'm comfortable yet. All right. Here's what I want to challenge you with. Why don't you write your story? And you can give it in a discreet way, it doesn't have to be out front in front of everyone, if that, that bothers you, that, that's okay, Totally. What if you wrapped it up in a gift and you passed that baton to a child or a grandchild, to a niece or a nephew, to a cousin or a friend, saying, this is a, this is a story I want to share with you. It's my life story, and I wanted you to hear it. It's how I came to know Christ and how everything in my life has been changed. Can I challenge you with that? Can I challenge my own life with that? Huh? Are, you, are you willing, maybe, just to consider, to wrestle with that? Who have you shared your story with? I want to challenge you. Again, as Mark writes here, this is the beginning of the gospel. He's calling these guys, guys, return back to the gospel. I want you to know the good news of who Christ is. I want to remind you of his identity. So he begins, right, with the gospel. The source of the gospel is Jesus. Secondly, he tells us about the confirmation of the gospel. What confirms that the gospel has actually come? Well, Mark says it's the messenger who's shown up on the scene. Look what he would begin in verse, chapter, verse 2 of Mark 1. He says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, he again, now he's going to cite Isaiah 40, where we've just been. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. 
right? So after Mark's brief introduction, he does something interesting. He doesn't hit rewind on the story 30 years. He hits rewind on the story 600, 700 years, back to the time of Isaiah the prophet. Why? Because he says, guys, prior to God coming to his people, he promised that something would happen. We might hear and think of it as the second Elijah who Jesus says, if you'll accept it, John the Baptist was the Elijah to come. Well, guess what? In verse 4, he says, John appeared. Mark's saying to us here, guys, I want you to see that there was a promised messenger that was going to show up on the scene. Before the true Messiah came, before the Lord returned for his people, there was going to come the great prophet, right, who was going to prepare the way. And he says, I want you to know that's John. So if John is on the scene, then he says, guess what? Let that be a light bulb to you to say, that must mean the Messiah is here. If the great prophet has come, that Isaiah's promise would be here before the day of the Lord, then I know if he has come, that must mean the Messiah is here. So Mark is trying to encourage them, guys, right? You're struggling. You're suffering. I want to remind you the true Messiah has come. And one of the ways you know that is the great messenger has come before him. We might ask, well, what is the messenger's role? Notice what he said again back there in verse 2. Here is the role of this messenger, indeed the role of John the Baptist. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Who will what? What's his role, church? Prepare your way. Notice look, he identifies that further. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. That's significant. We'll come to that in a minute. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make what? His path straight. Right? To make path straight. Now, now listen, what we learn... Um, from Bible historians, they tell us that often when kings were coming to a town, a village, when they might hear about that, they would make a new road for them. Why? Because roads were often really windy, right? And so they were curvy around hillsides. And oftentimes maybe they had to climb up really high and the roads were rough. And so they had to hone out big rocks. And sometimes, as you've probably been other places, right? You've probably traveled places where the roads are really rough and there's big deep divots right in there. And so they would raise those up and fill them. And so they're trying what they can to smooth out the roads for a king coming. I think we would all love to have the role of John the Baptist, but it's not a glamorous role. It's a hard role. John's preparing this of making the rough places smooth, the high places bringing them low, the low places bringing them up. Guess how he does this? By calling people to repent of their sins. That's hard. I'll be really honest with you. Sometimes I can do a good job in the pulpit, but man, I shrink back in the private. Like in the one-on-ones at times, like I have a hard time sometimes telling people how to get right with God and they need to stay right with God. Do you? You struggle, especially when it's family, friends, right, buddies. It can be hard. Guys, we must pray the Holy Spirit would give us courage. He would fill us with the Spirit of God like he did John the Baptist. We have the same Spirit. It wasn't like, oh, I'm giving John the Baptist his spirit, and I'm going to give you this second right. No, we have the Spirit of God indwelling us, filling us, empowering us. Calling people to repent. And I think it presses into an important question. Why is this messenger so significant? What, what's so important? It's because of who he reveals. Notice what he does here. He prepares the way to make this path straight. But notice who he's, who he's revealing, who he's pointing to. Notice what he said back in verse 1. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice what he calls him here. The what? The Son of God. You see it. Right, this flows again right out of Isaiah chapter 40. Look at if you would. Again, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. The very words that Mark is quoting. Again, notice what he says here, Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. 
Now, it's going to depend on your translation. I hope you have your Bible with you. You're looking, you're, you're wrestling with some of this. But the word Lord, depending again on your translation, not everyone's going to do it the same. But for many of you, your translation, the Lord is going to be all what? All caps. It's significant. Why? Because that is the name that God used back in Exodus chapter 3 when he revealed himself to Moses, the burning bush. When he said, Moses said, well, if I'm going into Egypt, like, they've got all these gods there. Like, who am I going to tell them that you are? And he says, well, you tell them that I, what? I am. It's the name that's translated Yahweh. This is the very words that Isaiah says. Now, this is significant and important. Listen again. Isaiah says that when this messenger comes, who's going to prepare the way of the Lord, notice what he says. He's going to prepare the way for Yahweh, the God of the covenant, the God of creation, the God of the exodus, the God who was faithful to the people in the wilderness. This God, he's going to come. And Mark says to us, look what he says, verse 3. He says, the Son of God is coming. Back here again in Mark chapter 1. The Son of God's coming, verse 1. But he says again to verse 3, prepare. Notice what he says. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. This is why John is so significant. Prepare the way, what? Of the Lord. Right? So guess what? Mark is saying to us, guys, Yahweh, God of, of the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the great God, the almighty God. He's become flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ. This is unthinkable to Jews, right? This is what blow, like this is blasphemous to think about and consider that God would become flesh and dwell among us. But that's the very thing Mark is saying. That's what's happening. So when you see John the Baptist on the scene, you can know that this is the true Messiah. This is the Lord Himself who has become flesh. Guys, this is why we're celebrating Christmas. It's not because God God hasn't sent an angel. He hasn't sent a substitute. God has sent Himself. This is what we're celebrating. This is the joy that fills our souls. This is why the gospel is good news. This is Jesus. But contemplate for a moment what this must reveal about us. If Yahweh had to come, if God himself had to leave his throne in heaven and come, what this says to us is that our sin is more serious and more fatal than we've ever believed. It declares to us that we can never actually rescue ourselves. And it says to us that the only hope of being redeemed and restored back to a right relationship with God and one another is for the Son of God to come and give His life in our place. This is the reminder and the hope. So as we celebrate Christmas, yes, we are overjoyed and excited, but why? It's because God has come for us. Us. God saw us in our sin. He saw us in our rebellion, yet He didn't stay in heaven. He came for us. Does that stir your soul? Does that move us, Greensburg, to say, we can't stay in these pews. We can't hide behind these walls. We must go to Greensburg, KY. It says to us, we can't just simply stay here in Greensburg, Kentucky. Our God came to us. He brought us the greatest hope. We must now go to the nations and tell them the hope of redemption is available in Jesus Christ. For some of you, the reminder is, as God himself left heaven and came to earth to rescue you, it says to you that you're going to have to do something difficult. It may not be go out to Greensburg, KY, or even to the nations. It may be going to the person, the pew next to you that you're at odds with. It may be even more difficult. It may be the person that you woke up beside this morning 
could be your own spouse. You say, Blake, you don't know what they've done or what they've said or how it's they promised they wouldn't do. I want to remind all of us, your soul and my soul, about the gospel. The gospel is the good news. Why? Because not we cleaned our life up enough. No. The gospel is good news because God loved us while we were still sinners. Hallelujah. Let us hear our Savior say, now go and do likewise. Forgive as you have been forgiven. This is the hope of the gospel. This is what we're celebrating at Christmas. Christ came to us in our sin. Now let's go to others in their sin and tell them the good news. So the gospel is confirmed by this messenger coming, right? He's identifying that the true Messiah is here, and that Messiah is none other than Jesus. This is the good news of the gospel. But what is this message that's being preached? Well, the message of the gospel is this. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. That is the message of the gospel. You wonder, like, well, the, the gospel means good news. What makes it such good news? It's that sinners can be forgiven. It's that you and I can be restored to God, not by any works, but by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. This is what we celebrate as we come and remember this time of Christmas, that our God has come. Behold our God, Greensburg, Kentucky. There's none like Him who came to rescue sinners, who had nothing to give. Man, we have a merciful and great God. But before we get to that forgiveness, we've got to realize there's an insurmountable boulder that lies before us, and it's our sin. And how do we deal with that? Well, listen to how this messenger from God answers that. Verse 4, John appeared, baptizing the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Man, how do you clear the path for the Messiah? Guess what it is? It's calling people to repent. Now, this isn't just unique, right? If you walk to verse 15, Jesus himself goes out, says verse 14, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. But this isn't unique just to John the Baptist. It's not unique just to Jesus. On the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, guess what Peter preaches? Repent. So what is repentance? This word is pretty significant. If John's going to be preaching it, Jesus is going to be preaching it, Peter's going to be preaching on the first day when the church is birthed as the Spirit comes, that's a pretty important word. The word repentance indicates a change of mind. It's a change of mind to say, you know what, my way of life no longer honors the Lord. It's, it's this hearing, right, as we heard back in Galatians 5. Maybe that list stung you. Some things stood out, realizing, man, I'm guilty of that. And it says to us, we can no longer live the way we live. It's a call, not only, right, to a different way of thinking, that my way of sin is no longer right, but it's a new way of life as we look to the Savior by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's becoming a new worship. Repentance indicates a new joy. What I once enjoyed is now death and and is misery to me. My joy, my hope is Christ and experiencing that forgiveness. But notice this, this repentance isn't private, it's public. How do we know? Look what happens here. John appeared. Notice what the people do in the response to the repent, call to repentance. Notice what they're doing. It says he re- reclaims, John appeared, he's baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized. It's public. They were showing, how do we know that we have inwardly repented? Well, the Bible says it's those who now outwardly demonstrate it through baptism. 
Third, can notice further, it's not only, right, it's not only that private work, right, of the Holy Spirit convicting of us our sins and confessing Christ our Lord and Savior. Notice what they do. They're confessing their sins. There's an acknowledgement, right, of, God, I, I'm sinful. I've rebelled against you. I, I remember this time as a kid. My brother and I had gotten in a fight, and Mom called us down, and we had to stand there, right, and I was supposed to tell my brother, tell your brother you're sorry, right? And I remember standing there. Telling my brother I was sorry. And as soon as we got upstairs, I said, I didn't mean a word of that. Had my fingers crossed the whole time. I don't remember exactly. He probably pounded me after that again. Now listen, the reality is we can say we're sorry all day long. And as grown-ups, we've probably learned, I don't have my fingers crossed behind my back. But man, we have a tendency to cross our hearts, don't we? I forgive you. I love you, brother. Oh, I love you. It's okay. It's okay. But man, our hearts crossed on the inside we're bitter we're resentful i forgive you i'll never ever forget it you'll never get away with this i think we all struggle with that and so here it is i think it's a reminder saying you're sorry is easy repentance it's biblical repentance is the word the bible uses not just simply saying i'm sorry it's a call to repentance Say, not only am I sorry, but brother, sister, I no longer want to live this way. How would you forgive me? Would you pray for me? There's a call for repentance, not just simply I'm sorry, get out of jail, free car. There's a call to repent. I want to ask you this morning, what do you need to repent of? What do you need to confess to the Lord? Guys, I think we need to remind ourselves that repentance is a return to the gospel. We've considered repentance a bad word. John the Baptist didn't consider it bad. Jesus didn't consider it bad. Peter didn't consider it bad. The Lord himself didn't consider it bad as he inspired these words of Scripture. He wanted to remind us a call to repent, to turn from our sinful ways. Maybe you wonder, well, why in the world would someone ever confess their sins? Why would someone ever repent, turn from their way of life? Once again, we talked about it already, right? It's the good news of the gospel. Listen to what it says again. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for what church? The forgiveness of sins. What will motivate a man or a woman, a boy or a girl to repent? It's the hope of forgiveness of sins. It's a work of the Holy Spirit of God who begins to convict us, to show us our sin and what it truly is. But it's that hope. Are you telling me that everything I've ever done? Consider that for a moment. Everything you've ever done. Not only just our wicked actions, beloved. I'm saying every sinful thought. Every evil deed of your and my heart that we've concealed. We've hidden away from people. They don't know. God knows. The Word of God says everything is laid open before the Lord. Nothing is hidden before His sight. But the good news is, listen, that will cause us all to scurry in the darkness until the gospel comes. And there's good news. There's light. There's a God who says, I see you in the darkness and I love you. I have come for you. It's the hope of the gospel. This is what we're celebrating Christmas. It's the promise of forgiveness. That's the hope we have. Now listen, I I want to deal with it just briefly right here. Notice what he says. John appeared baptizing the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. There's a question of Okay, is he saying that baptism impacts the forgiveness of sins? Because he says baptism for the forgiveness of sins. No, right? And we could walk through all kinds of Bible verses in the Old Testament, New Testament, remind us that we are saved by grace through faith. Passages like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But I do think Mark 
wouldn't want us to minimize baptism. I think it reminds us that baptism without repentance is pointless. Like just to say, hey, I'm going to get up there and get baptized today because that's what I should do. And that's no, there's a change of heart. Right? It's outwardly declaring what's happened inwardly. So there should be a true change of heart wrought by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's done a work of convicting us of sin and giving us a desire to change. But I think Mark might also say to us that repentance without baptism is inconceivable. To simply say, I've repented, I've believed on Jesus, but I'm unwilling to follow him in baptism. Mark would say, what? John the Baptist would say, what? This is the step of faith for those who have truly repented and believed on Christ. They should follow him in baptism. For some of you, that probably creates some questions or doubts. Maybe it's this. Possibly you wonder back to the time when you were saved. You think back to the beginning and you wonder like, man, I don't know if I was like really repenting. Like, did I know enough that I can, you know, like, did I really mean it? I think the New Testament would ask you this. Since the time of your salvation, when you confessed Christ and followed him in believer's baptism by immersion, has there been a lifestyle of repentance? Has there been an ongoing confession of sin, forsaking of sin? You see, I think there might be a danger in those who, you know what, I had this splash in the pan, so to speak, moment. I was really, oh man, but there's been no lifestyle of repentance. I've just gone right back to my old way of life. After months and months, years and years, like there's no indication of a desire to repent. That should cause great concern. That should usher you forward today to say, there's hope of forgiveness. Return to Christ. Look to Him. But I want to encourage you, for some of you, as you look back, you, you remember that you were young, or maybe there were some distorted things. The person that baptized you, you wonder about them. Guys, I want you to know that ultimately that's between you and the Lord. Baptism and salvation ultimately is a work of the Lord Himself as we are saved. But I want to remind you, as you look back, maybe you think, I just didn't know, I'm not sure I knew everything I know now. If I'd have known... Have you seen that the Lord's working in your life, just this evidence of ongoing repentance and turning of sin? You've seen the bearing of fruit in your life. I want to encourage you. It's evidence. The New Testament would say that you've truly been born again. You see, as we celebrate Christmas, guys, I think it's a reminder, we cannot separate Christ's coming from the call to confess and repent of sins. In other words, the Christ of the cradle is the Christ of the cross. Let us not separate those two as we celebrate it. So we've heard today that the source of the gospel is Jesus. The confirmation that the gospel has come is the messenger. We've seen that the message of the gospel is forgiveness. And last, and this one I'm just telling you, it's been an absolute delight of my soul this week to study this. And I cannot wait to share it with you. This is like when your family comes over and like I, you may have had a great meal, but man, you worked on that dessert. And you're like, dude, I cannot wait for them to enjoy this. This right here, I am telling you, is going to be grace on your life. This is like, man, like you, you've showed up in the mashed potato lines and thank God for those lunch ladies who would pour extra gravy on mine. I love that. Like, let that baby pour into all other five sections of my little tray. I loved it. This is, I'm telling you, it's going to bless your life. I, I'm just, I'm, I've been so stoked all week because of what it's meant for my own soul. I can't wait for you to hear. It's this, the outcome of the gospel is hope. It's hope. Listen to this, man. So they go out, they're baptized. It says John, verse 6, is uh, this wild, wild man who wears camel's hair as clothing. He wears a leather belt around his waist. He eats grasshoppers and wild honey, okay? So he's a guy who lives in the wilderness. That's part of what he's distinction, but it's also a reminder of some of the Old Testament prophets who lived in this way of life, who were identified in this type of dress and, and, and things. And that's what he says, verse 7. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, 
the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I don't have time today, but just a real quick reminder. Jesus has sandals remind us that he is a man, but he also baptizes with the Holy Spirit remind us that he is God. He's fully God, fully man right there. Bam, in that little statement, just a reminder of who he is. But notice what he says. This is the hope that we have. John says, listen, guys, I'm baptizing you with water, but there's coming one after me. Coming one after me. The the job of a servant, of even the lowest household, right? A Jew wasn't even allowed to get down and do that work of tying someone else's sandal. He says, listen, I'm not even worthy of having the lowest job to do that for him. I'm not even, I mean, this is who this God is. He's Yahweh, guys. This is God in the flesh. He says, I I baptize with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's what Peter says on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 after he preaches repentance. He says, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised from the dead and ascended back to the Father's right hand. And he is the one right now pouring out the Holy Spirit. He says he's God. This is a reminder of the hope that we have. Why? Because what kind of people is he pouring out the Spirit on? People who are confessing sin and repenting. You know what that means? That we can come to God. We don't have to have the perfect report card, so to speak. Your rap sheet may be full. You may have made a mess and a misery of things. You may have had the worst junk in the trunk, so to speak, of anybody in this room. I want you to know that you can come. There's a God who is willing to forgive. And you know how? He's going to send his spirit to live inside of you to promise you, you are my child. I claim you. I've adopted you as my own. You've received the Holy Spirit. So child of God today, if you have the Holy Spirit, let that remind you of the love of God towards you. Let it be hope to your soul even in your sin. My God loves me. He's not forsaken me. Oh man, what hope that is. What good news that is. But I want to draw your attention to something else today. Again, it's just stood out to me all week long. Look what it says here again, just throughout this passage. He says he's the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Verse 3. Notice what happens here, verse 4. They're baptizing them in the wilderness. Notice what it says in all, verse 5, in all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem, they are going out to him. Well, they're going out to him where? In the wilderness. Guys, the wilderness is a desert. It's a place where there's a lack of food, a lack of water, a lack of shade, a lack of shelter. It is not glamorous. What's interesting, I think, as I studied and thought about this for a little bit, is that I spent a lot of my life trying to evade the wilderness, like to get out of that. Like that's the last place I want to be in the hard place of life. Like how can I get out of this quicker? But I think it can be dangerous, always trying to escape the wilderness. Why? Because we often forget that it's a beautiful place, a place of hope. Why? Because that's the place where God so often meets us, in the wilderness. This past week I ran into a lady here in Greensburg, Kentucky, man. And she, her her family has just experienced some hard times physically, some physical hardships that have led to some financial hardships. She said, but Blake, I want you to know that God has used that to draw us to him. I said, you, you ought to hear my children pray. They pray differently. You ought to know the relationship between my husband and I. It's different. And, and my finances, like I never dreamed that those, how God could provide in this type of wilderness we're in. I never dreamed it. And yet he has. She's like, I just can't keep from rejoicing for what God has brought us to and how he's used this situation in our life. Guys, I think her story fits with really the entire Bible, but what Mark is saying, and and, and Pastor Tim Keller, author Tim Keller, he talks about this question. He says, where did Moses meet God at the burning bush in the wilderness? Where did Jacob wrestle with God in the wilderness? Think back to the people 
in Egypt. Where did they encounter God? Yes, God was absolutely at work in Egypt. I don't want to minimize that. But ultimately, they encountered the Lord at Mount Sinai in the wilderness. Guys, I think it's a reminder to us that often, so often, God delights to meet us in the wilderness. The real wilderness is why? Why is it so significant and important because of this? Because I think when we come to the wilderness moments of our lives, we realize, God, without you, I can't make it. I can't go on. I can't take a face another day. I can't get out of the bed tomorrow. I don't have any hope, God. This wilderness is too much for me. And God says, now you're seeing who I am. Now you'll know the power of I am. That I'm the great and mighty God. And I'm the God who also whispers to you. You see, the God of the wilderness. You see, when our wells all go dry in the wilderness, we learn that Christ is the true rock, the true well of living life. We learn, right, when all of our finances dry up and all of our stuff of our life, that it really was just moldy manna anyway, that Christ is the true feast. He is the one that we must have. If we have Him, then all the world behind me, the cross and Christ before me, no turning back. You see, I think it's in the wilderness that we realize, apart from God, we have no hope. Apart from God, nothing else will satisfy You see, I think we all want to resist the wilderness, but it's so often that that's the very place that God uses to draw us to, that we might meet Him and know Him and realize, if I have Christ, I have everything. If I have everything and don't have Christ, I have nothing. Some of you today may have found yourself in the wilderness. I I get it. Man, I've wilderness moments in my own life, and I just keep thinking, God, where'd I hit the eject button? Get out of here as quick as I can. But if you're honest... I think we've done that our whole lives. Some of us maybe have numbed that pain with addiction and different things. Some of us, right, it's just been about one relationship to the next to try to get out of there to rescue ourselves and restore peace somehow. Maybe it's you've eluded your emptiness with thoughts of Christmas and more and more toys and bigger and better this year than last year, and hopefully that will give us joy and happiness for a little while. And But the reality is all of those things are empty wells. Church, let us go to God in the wilderness. Let's go and encounter Him. Let's meet Him in the midst of our brokenness and sin. Let Him experience and let let us experience. Let us know that the Lord alone is enough, church. That if we have God, we have enough. That He is our hope. That He is the solid rock. He is the manna from which we eat. He is our peace. He is our joy. If we have Christ, we have hope. That's the hope of the gospel. That's what we're celebrating this Christmas. So I compel you, unbeliever, to come to Christ today, to the church. I compel you, return to the gospel. Let Mark say to you, let's go back to the beginning. Let's return back to the gospel. Let's hear that we are sinners and that there's no hope for us in and of ourselves. But there's a God who came, who took on flesh, who lived a sinless life who died on the cross, suffering in our our place, taking God's judgment for us that we might be forgiven, we might experience the forgiveness of sins. Let us remind ourselves of that this Christmas. There is good news. There is hope. And for those in the wilderness, I compel you today, by grace, to pause and pray and say, God, would you show me yourself? Don't let me miss you in this moment. Let me look. Let me learn to worship you alone. Would you pray with me?
Father, thank you so very much for just the opportunity to preach this word. Lord, it has been an absolute joy of my heart this week. And I pray it has been grace upon grace to my my blessed brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, I pray for those in this room who do not yet know this hope, this forgiveness of sins. I pray today by the power of your Holy Spirit, like Saul of Tarsus, the blinders have fallen from their eyes and they see clearly the resurrected Christ. God, strengthen us now to worship you in spirit and truth, to go and to share our story of what Christ has done for us. I pray this for the glory of Christ. Amen.